Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I mentioned uh, briefly last week that uh, the Gospel of Matthew is focused on revealing who Jesus is to an audience that for the most part comes from uh, a, a Jewish background. They're familiar with what we know of as the Old Testament. They've learned about it their entire life. And Matthew, as he writes his story of who Jesus is, wants people with that background to be able to see that Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they have been longing for. And Matthew does that in all sorts of ways over the course of of this book, if we were to read the entire thing, we covered in uh, our adult Sunday school class just this morning the way that across the first few chapters of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and there's four, in those first four chapters, Matthew is showing us how Jesus is recounting and fulfilling the story of the Old Testament in a way that it never has been before, uh, so, that, so that God's people may know who God is and experience Him in a way they never have before. And another way that Matthew does that over the course of, his, of the gospel is that he records five different uh, sections of teaching, five different moments where Jesus gives us a lengthy uh, a section of teaching. And there are all kinds of theories as to why he does it, why he organizes it in that way, but it seems to be that, that Matthew does this intentionally because when we read through the story of the Old Testament, if we begin at, at the book of Genesis, the Old Testament begins with these five books of Moses, what the Jewish people call the law. And just as uh, the Old Testament begins with the five books of Moses, these five books where Moses is lining out who God is and how his people are to live, the Gospel of Matthew gives us five different moments where Jesus sits down and teaches, reveals who he is, what this kingdom that he has come to bring in the world is all about, and how we can be a part of it. Over the last few weeks, we have been focused in on uh, the third of those five sections of teaching. We've been in Matthew chapter 13 for the past few weeks. And, and Matthew 13, we saw, is a, a sermon teaching from Jesus that is largely uh, a number of parables. Jesus telling stories about who he is, about what this kingdom is all about, and, and how we get to be a part of it. And today, as we continue our series, looking at the parables of Jesus, these stories that he tells, we are going to jump ahead to the fourth of those five sections of teaching, which comes in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is a passage of Scripture you might remember. We spent five weeks in, uh, in April and May of last year focusing in on it in our series that we called A Jesus People because uh, Matthew 18 is, is really unique in the four Gospels because it's really one of the few places where Jesus sits down and talks about the church, talks about what it means for us to live life together, even life after uh, He is no longer among His people. If I could drastically oversimplify things, uh, Matthew 13 that we have been looking at is a, a passage where Jesus is casting a vision about what his kingdom is all about, about how we get to be a part of it. And now in chapter 18, he is showing us what it looks like to live with one another uh, within this kingdom. 
So as we come into the parable that we're going to be looking at today, I say all of that because it's helpful for us to have that context in our mind, because this is the tail end of a longer sermon, a longer section of teaching that Jesus has been giving. And this teaching begins in in chapter 18, verse 1, the the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, "Uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're trying to sort out amongst themselves who's the most important. And so to explain what true greatness looks like in the eyes of God's kingdom, Jesus puts a child before them. Uh, Someone with no status, no authority, and from that, and Jesus says that when you look at a child, you see what true greatness looks like in his kingdom. And from that point, Jesus expands. He says that, that because a child is vulnerable, has no status, no authority, God is concerned for them as he's always concerned for the vulnerable. And for that reason, God takes it very seriously when anyone or anything leads someone who is vulnerable astray, leads them uh, into sin, leads them out of life with God. And for that reason, God will deal with sin severely. And yet, although sin is severe, Jesus continues to explain that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Because just as a shepherd with a flock of a hundred sheep will abandon the 99 to pursue one that wanders away, in the same way God will pursue those who wander away from Him because God desires that they would come back, that they would have life with Him, that they would be restored into His people. And because that is the case with how God acts towards us, Jesus then turns the focus slightly to focus on how we deal with one another. When someone among us is guilty of wandering away and Jesus walks through this process to follow when someone sins against God or against their brothers and sisters in Christ with the ultimate goal being that there would be reconciliation with God and with one another. Jesus desires that because of how God has acted towards us, we would treat one another with the same love and grace. And all of that ground has been covered up to the point where we're going to pick things up today in Matthew 18, 21. And in verse 21, Peter, in light of everything Jesus has said, asks a follow-up question. Because Jesus has just walked through this process of what forgiveness, what reconciliation looks like. And if we're honest for a little bit, this process Jesus walks through can be kind of lengthy. I mean, Jesus just walked through this process. I don't know about you. In my experience, people tend to be imperfect. So if, if we we're to walk through this process every single time wrong is done, every single time sin is committed, we are going to find ourselves uh, taking up a lot of time with this. And so Peter comes to Jesus with this question of how forgiving his people are really supposed to be. If this is what seeking reconciliation looks like, how many times do we go through this process before it's time to give up and move on? That's the question that leads to the story Jesus tells. So let's read our passage, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Uh, Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be be patient with me, I'll pay it back. He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debts. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Jesus says, just walked through this process, like I mentioned earlier, of how to deal with someone who is living in sin, who's rebelled against God, and how to seek reconciliation in those moments. And at the end of it, Jesus says that even in a worst-case scenario, where, where you have someone who is fully aware of the fact that, that their actions, that the life they are leading is in complete rebellion against God, it's the exact opposite of his intentions for him, and they've had that made clear to them, and they have said that they simply do not care. They want to keep living in rebellion. Jesus says that even in that situation, they are to be treated as a tax collector or a sinner or a Gentile, which might seem harsh to us, and in a sense it is, and yet at the same time, it's, it's a reminder to us that, that those are the exact kind of people that Jesus is consistently criticized for spending time around. That even in a worst-case scenario, Jesus says you don't get rid of someone completely, but you treat them as someone who needs to hear the message of Jesus for the first time. And Peter wants to know, how wide we cast that net? And as often as Peter is guilty of saying the wrong thing across the Gospels, we can give him credit here and say he is at least moving in the right direction. Because Jesus is far from the first Jewish rabbi to have the question posed to him of, how many times do I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And it seems, from everything we can tell, that that the general process, most of the time, the standard answer seems to have been from Jewish rabbis, you forgive someone three times. If the fourth time comes around, and they still haven't figured it out yet, they still haven't learned their lesson, it's time to cut bait and move on. So Jesus asked this, or Peter asked this question to Jesus. And we can give him some credit. Uh, he's been around Jesus enough. He doesn't have it all figured out yet, but he knows the collective wisdom of the day. He's thought it through. He's noticed that there's something different about Jesus. Forgiveness seems to be higher on Jesus' priority list than most people, and so he's hearing everything Jesus is saying, and he asks Jesus, so how many times do we forgive? Maybe, maybe seven times? Maybe seven times is a good number? I, I mean, when you read across Scripture, the number seven is consistently this number of perfection, so you, it's, got, it's got this biblical background going for it. I mean, seven is, is twice as many as three, even more than that. So, so uh, maybe Jesus would be happy with seven. The way Jesus works in the world, he's so much more gracious than everyone else. Maybe seven times is how many times someone should be forgiven within this kingdom that Jesus is establishing. 
And Peter's moving in the right direction. What we find is that he still hasn't caught up to Jesus. Peter's moved the line far beyond the the common thought of his day, and yet Jesus blows Peter's line out of the water. Because instead of seven times, Jesus says to forgive 77 times. You might be reading from a different translation that says 70 times seven times. Both of those ways are accurate translations of what the original language says. Essentially, Jesus says that God's people are to never stop forgiving. The focus is not so much on the exact number. I think we see that in even the fact that it's translated in multiple ways. The the point is not that once you get to chance 78 or maybe even chance 491, then you're off the hook. The point is to say that whatever number we might have in our heads for what is an appropriate number of times to forgive someone, Jesus takes us exponentially further. Forgiveness is something that is is not something that is conceived of as optional within the kingdom of God. It is something that is at the core of who God's people should be. And that is the posture that allows us to thrive as a community of people desiring to be formed after the example and the character of Jesus. To follow Jesus means to be a person characterized by forgiveness. And that's a difficult thing. Because forgiveness is not always our default setting. We spoke a little bit last week about the fact that God is just, and we've, we've spoken about how in connection with that, what we find is that as human beings living in a broken world but created in the image of God, we, we desire justice. We, we don't maybe not always have the right language for it. We don't always put it in those terms, but when we see wrong in the world, we desire for that wrong to be dealt with, to be set Right, and biblically, we, we are told that those are good things. That, that's a good desire that is in us because we're created in the image of God. And yet, uh, Scripture tells us to trust in God, that He is the perfect judge who will one day deal with all evil, all injustice for all time. And yet, so often we want to short-circuit that process, take matters into our own hands. Believing that God is just, that God will deal with evil evil and injustice for all time, it brings freedom for us. Because God in His perfect wisdom will deal with the wrongs in the world, and that means that we are set free to forgive people. And yet, when we don't actually believe that God can be trusted, when we don't actually believe that God will deal with the wrongs of the world, we can try to deal with them ourselves instead. And my guess is we probably wouldn't put it in so stark of terms. Maybe sometimes we go about trying to pay back someone exactly for the wrong they've done to us. We have an exact number, an exact thing that has happened to us, and we want to repay that person in the exact same way. But more often than not, in my experience, it looks like holding on to grudges, making sure anyone and everyone knows that a wrong has been done to me, and I can tell you exactly who did it, exactly who's responsible, exactly the effect that it has had, and I am not going to let go of that anytime soon. Maybe it looks like bitterness, spending years holding on to what has been done, keeping up with every last detail of what is going on in the life of this person who has wronged me, and, and I will rejoice anytime something bad has happens to them because in some small way it is me getting back at them for what they've done to me. And any time a good thing happens to them, I will be resentful 
because they don't deserve to have good happen to them because of what they have done to me. And if we're being honest, living in that way gives us small glimpses, small moments of vindication or something bad happens to someone who's done something wrong to us and we get those moments of, yes, there is justice in the world. But it's not a healthy way to live. If nothing else, because it's not the way God created us to live. We weren't created to live with a notebook in our back pocket, tracking every last wrong done to us, making sure that the scales balance out at the end of, end of the day. God calls his people to forgive. People whose posture to the world is one of being more gracious to others than they deserve. Not because we're morally superior to every person, but because that is how God has acted towards us in Jesus. So Jesus calls us to forgive and then tells us this parable to demonstrate how deeply we have been forgiven and how that should impact how we go about forgiving others. Jesus tells the story of a king settling accounts with his servants. And the king comes to a servant who owes him 10,000 talents, is what your translation might say. The NIV that we were reading from says 10,000 bags of gold. And there are all kinds of attempts to try to translate exactly how much money that would be in our world today and, 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 and the amount of money we are talking about here. And those are helpful. Those have their place. But really the point Jesus is trying to make here is that this is an absurd amount of debt that would be nearly impossible to rack up and even more impossible to ever dream about one person paying back. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that about 90 years before Jesus gave this teaching in 63 B.C., when General Pompey conquered the land of Israel for the Roman Empire, the entire nation of Israel had to pay uh, the Roman Empire tribute because they were now ruling over them, and the amount of tribute they had to pay was 10,000 talents. The entire nation had to take up a collection to reach this amount of money to pay to the Roman Empire. So it's maybe not a perfect parallel, but maybe we can get our arms around how much money this is. It would be like if you woke up tomorrow morning and discovered that because of some kind of clerical error, you were now responsible for the entire national debt. That you had all of that sitting in, you know, in, in your account. The IRS was expecting that from you. That's the sort of debt we're talking about here. Or maybe a little bit like I heard a story recently in a podcast. Um, there was a, a computer programmer who was registering for new license plates. You know how you can register for custom license plates and things like that. And because he was a computer programmer, he had kind of assumed in his head that, that in the state where he lived, there was a computer database of some sort. And every time a traffic ticket was written, you know, a cop would probably have to write out the license plate number of the person who committed the violation. And he assumed that, that all of that then went into this database, and if there was ever any trouble uh, with you know, the, the license plate number put in, if the computer didn't process it right or something like that, that then the database would show that the license plate number just, would just say null, uh, that it would just be blank in the, in the database, the spreadsheet, what have you. So he had this idea. He said, I'll register for, for license plates that just say null on them, and then, even if I get a traffic ticket, it'll show up as blank in the system, and I can do whatever I want. I'll never have to get a traffic ticket ever again. And before you start getting any ideas, what happened was that every time there was any kind of issue with a ticket being written in the entire state, the database would send the traffic ticket to him. 
So he was finding every day, he would go open his mailbox, and there's just a stack of parking tickets and speeding tickets and all these things, and they were all by different cars in different counties all across the state, and he was responsible for paying all of them. That's the sort of situation that this servant is in in Matthew 18. So what do you do with that amount of debt? I mean, paying it back isn't a realistic option when we're talking about that amount of money for one person. So the king orders that this servant and his entire family be sold into debt slavery to be able to make up just a portion of this amount. And faced with this reality, the servant resorts to the only option he has left. He begs for mercy. He simply asks for more time. If I could just get some things in order, you know, once the check comes through, I'll be able to pay back some of this, which might be a nice sentiment, but it is not based in reality. It doesn't matter how hard he works. It doesn't matter how many jobs he takes on. He is going to spend the rest of his life just trying to make a dent in the principal on this debt, much less trying to pay off the interest. Yet he stands before the king, stands before his master, and begs. And if we can turn back to uh, the example I gave earlier of some kind of clerical error or something like that, leading to you being faced with an astronomical amount of debt, my guess is if we were to continue to think through that hypothetical, the next step is probably some kind of phone call to some office somewhere, dealing with some kind of customer service to try to find some sort of solution to this problem. And if we can think about that more, it's probably not going to go all that smoothly based on every interaction I've ever had with customer service. If we're thinking through this story from the perspective of how it should go in the real world, we would probably expect something similar from this king looking at this servant begging. Nice try. You put on a good show. But you've done too much. The debt's too high, you've gone too far, it's too deep a hole. You, your wife, your kids, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and probably beyond that, are going to spend their entire lives working to pay off this debt. But instead, when we get to verse 27, we find that the king has pity. At least that's how the NIV translates it. If you're reading from a different translation, it might say compassion. The servant deserves to be sent into prison along with his entire family for the rest of his life and then some. And yet this king does not treat him as he deserves. He wipes away the debt and the servant goes home free. And this servant on his way home or at some point not too far removed from this situation, he he comes across, he finds a second servant who owes him a hundred silver coins, as the, the NIV puts it. The amount talk, t- being talked about there is roughly the equivalent of four months of wages, if you can think about that, what you would make over the course of four months. So it's not an insignificant amount of debt. I don't want to sweep it under the rug. Like, it's not like you're digging through the couch this afternoon and finding that amount of money, at least I hope not. But at the same time, it, it's pretty feasible to think that that amount of debt is going to get paid off eventually. And just for some perspective, a lot of scholars point out that this is about, uh, compared to the, the debt of the first servant, the second servant owes a debt that is 600,000 times smaller. That's the difference between these two debts, between the one that the king has just forgiven and the debt that this servant owes. 
So based on what this first servant has just experienced, I'm not really sure what we might be expecting, what the text wants us to think is about to happen. But what the first servant does when he sees the second servant, he grabs him, he begins to choke him, he demands that he be repaid. And if things weren't already interesting at that point, they get more interesting in verse 29. Because just as the first servant fell before the king on his knees and begged, the second servant falls on his knees before the first servant and begs again. In verse 26, the first servant, faced with his debt, fell on his knees before the king and begged and said, please, just give me more time. I'll pay back everything. And now in verse 29, the second servant falls on his knees before the first servant and begs and says, please, just give me a little more time and I'll pay back everything. It's almost word for word the exact same plea. And it was at this point where the first servant received pity, compassion. The debt was forgiven and the servant was set free. And we might expect, if, if everything's progressing in the same way here in this second scene, we might prog- expect that that would happen again here. But instead, we get to verse 30. And where the king had compassion, where the king had pity, the servant grabs his fellow servant and throws him into prison, demands that he stays there until he can repay the debt. And to this point, we've had these two separate interactions. They both involved this one servant, but, but one was with the king, one was with the second servant. And now in verse 31, those two begin to collide. The servant's actions are reported to the king. The king tells the first servant he should have had the same kind of mercy that had been extended to him. And because he's not, he's sent to prison to be tortured until he can pay off this debt. In other words, he is sent to prison to be tortured for the rest of his life. Jesus tells this story. He says this is how God will act towards us if we do not truly, thoroughly forgive one another. This is how Jesus answers Peter's question of how many times should we forgive someone who wrongs us. He says it is not a matter of keeping score of how others have treated us. It is a matter of acting towards others in light of how God has acted towards us. And when this is how God's people act towards those around them, we grow into everything we have been created to be. Jesus says that if we refuse to extend that to others, we will not truly experience the grace of God. And that might strike us as harsh, as if God is saying, you better be gracious to others because if not, I'm going to throw you into hell or something like that. And and God's the only one with the scorecard. We have no idea ever if we're being gracious enough. But if we look closely, this is not the point Jesus is making because of how things are ordered there in verse 33. The king says to the first servant, he should have had mercy just as he had received mercy. This parable does not say that if the first servant had been merciful to the second servant, then the king would have been merciful to him. It begins with the mercy of the king, which is then expected to spill over into the mercy that is extended towards others. In light of the mercy that we have received from our God, our king we are then called to treat others in the same way and if we do not act towards others in a way that is in line with how god has acted towards us it is perhaps an indication we have not truly understood and experienced what our king has done for us 
the experience of mercy had not transformed this servant. And that was demonstrated towards how they demonstrated by how they acted towards those around them. And that is the crux of this parable. Jesus' people are not called to be made right with God and then move on, but to allow that act of being made right with God to transform every part of our existence. Jesus desires forgiveness. Forgiveness that leads to reconciliation between us and Him, between us and those around us, because it is only in that where we find true healing. That is what God has done towards us. Not simply sweeping things done, sweeping wrongs that were done under the rug, but actually moving towards us in the death and the resurrection of His Son so that we might be reconciled to God, so that our sin might be dealt with, so that the threat of death might be cast aside, so that we might truly be healed. And God desires the same thing for us in our relationships with one another. The first servant had received far more mercy than he deserved, and yet that mercy did not lead to transformation. The first servant went away from his experience of mercy, holding a list of grievances right with the king, but refusing to be made right with his fellow servants. And that refusal to be reconciled to others meant he could not be reconciled to his king. And that is not how God has called us to live. The work God has done to bring healing and reconciliation between us and Him should always cause us to pursue healing and reconciliation with others. And if you're hearing that right now and and feel like that sounds difficult, I am not going to lie to you and say that it's easy, but this parable and the details it gives us help us see how it's possible. Because Jesus makes it abundantly clear here that we forgive because we have been forgiven. It's not a trait we get really good at on our own, but as with every other aspect of our Christian life, the mercy we extend towards others is extended in response to the mercy God has already extended to us. The gospel cuts against every other narrative pitched to us by our world. The world says, be good to others so that they will be good to you. The gospel says to be good to others because God has been better to you than you could ever imagine. But not only that, but the forgiveness we strive for happens in community. I find it fascinating that Jesus includes this minor detail that the actions of the first servant towards the second servant are found out by the king because they are reported to him by fellow servants. And I don't think the point Jesus is trying to make there is that he's pro-tattling or anything like that. But given that this comes in a section of teaching from Jesus dealing with how we live life together, it seems like an important reminder that the grace we extend or don't extend towards others is done in the context of relationship with others. We do not follow Jesus as a group of individuals. We work out what it looks like to follow Jesus within relationships with others who are doing the same thing. And when we refuse to extend mercy, forgiveness towards others, we don't, not only do we suffer, but those around us suffer as well. When we pursue healing and reconciliation, the life Jesus calls us into is experienced by us and by those around us. And even as I say that, I am fully aware that it is much easier to say from a stage into a microphone than it is to put into practice. I'm fully aware that in speaking to any group of people, including this one, 
saying things like, we need to forgive others no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, anything like that, it can be difficult to even think about. My hunch is there are probably some of you listening to me right now and you are thinking something along the lines of, yeah, sure, forgiveness isn't a bad idea. I'm sure it works out for some people, but if you knew what they did to me, you'd be singing a different tune. Or maybe you're not thinking that exactly right now. Maybe you're you're tracking with me, but you are so firmly entrenched in your position against one specific person that there is no way anything I say is getting through your defenses if you have anything to say on the matter. If that's you this morning, if it sounds like I am saying that if you want God to forgive all the wrongs you've done, you just have to be a pushover, hear me when I say that that is not the point Jesus is making. Because the message of the gospel does not overlook wrongdoing. Jesus cannot be telling us to just sweep all the wrongs that are done to us under the rug because Jesus didn't sweep the wrongs that we did to him under the rug. A price had to be paid for our sins against God. And they were paid by Jesus on the cross. So when Jesus calls us to forgive, he's not calling us to grin and bear it and say it's okay when in reality it is eating us up inside. He's calling us to experience the fullness of grace because grace is meant to be experienced as we are transformed by what we receive from God and acted out towards others, treating them better than they deserve precisely because Jesus has treated us better than we deserve. And if we don't have both pieces of that, we are missing something important. If we find ourselves not even willing to entertain the option of extending grace to someone, it is at least a sign that we have maybe not fully understood all that Christ has done to us in his, done for us in his death and resurrection. Because the ability to forgive in this way is only possible through the lens of what is available in Jesus. This parable is not asking us to do something by our own power, but to act in light of what has already been done for us. Because when we do that, we begin to experience the life Jesus has come to bring. One commentator says on this parable that to live well means to live with a generous and forgiving heart. On any given day, you and I are fed any number of messages about what a good life is supposed to be about what you should aspire to, what you should try to achieve, what you, what you should own, because once you do that, you'll have the good life, you'll be happy, everything will be great. The message of Jesus says if we truly want to have the good life, if we truly want to have the life God has created us for, we will be people who live with a posture of grace and forgiveness. So if you find yourself holding on to, un- to bitterness, being unwilling to forgive. The takeaway is not you better, be, you better get better at forgiving or God isn't going to love you. The message is that if you are refusing to live with a posture of forgiveness, you are missing out on the life Jesus desires for you to have within his kingdom. Jesus has done what is necessary for us to be reconciled to God. And he tells us that when we take that same posture towards the world around us, we are healed and the world around us is healed as well. And that makes, it even, that makes it easier for us to extend grace and forgiveness even to those who have committed real wrongs. Those who, even to, towards those who don't believe they have anything they need to be forgiven for. 
Sometimes despite our best efforts, we're not able to bring about the reconciliation we desire. We can't twist people's arms and force them uh, to receive forgiveness and to be healed. And ultimately, there are components of what Jesus is getting at here that are out of our control. But we can live with a posture that treats people better than they deserve and desires to the best of our abilities to seek reconciliation. Because when we do that, we are following the pattern of the cross. That pattern's not always easy. It sure wasn't for Jesus. But just as going to the cross brought healing to the world, our grace towards others makes healing possible. And when we do that, we are better for it because we are tangibly demonstrating what Christ has done for us. Another commentator says on this passage that a community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community question this passage asks of us is not do you forgive enough it is do you understand how much you have been forgiven and when we answer that question right our answers to every other question falls into place because we need more forgiveness than we would ever dare think and yet at the same time our king is more gracious than we could ever imagine and those two truths together make it possible for us to be people who forgive So as we are formed by this parable, it forces us to ask the question of whether or not we truly live in this way. And for those of us who are not followers of Jesus, this parable calls us to recognize the lengths to which Christ has gone to deal with our sin, to set right what we had made wrong. And for those of us who do follow Jesus, it calls us to reflect on what has been done for us and whether or not we have been formed by the gospel, because Jesus Jesus will not let us off the hook. We're called to respond, to step into life with him. And I don't know what your response to this parable looks like, but my hope, my goal is that all of us would be people who are being formed by the forgiveness of Jesus in every area of our lives because forgiven people forgive people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that is available to us in your Son. That when we were sinners, when we had wandered away from you, Father, you came near so that we might have life with you. And yet at the same time, Father, the story does not end there. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us as we are formed by your grace and your mercy. As we step into a deeper life with you, God, would you form us in the image of your Son so that we might be people who are gracious and forgiving to the world around us so that we might play some small part in bringing healing to our world that is so broken. Would you be glorified in us as individuals and as a community and in our world? It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.